It's the Ambiguously Blind Podcast with your host, a guy that's great up hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, hey, hey. Greetings. Welcome back to the Ambiguously Blind Studio. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting our podcast experience. I want to remind you that this little podcast has become quite social. We're on most of the major social platforms, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, yada, 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 but probably our our best presence, at least from a uh, picture standpoint, is on Instagram. So please connect with us on social media, notably on Instagram, where we are at Ambiguously Blind. You can search for that on those other platforms or my name, and most of them should show up. There's also links to all of those from the website, ambiguouslyblind.com. I mentioned Instagram and photos, notably for our guest on this episode, Jill Wheatley. She is an adventurer that posts some incredible photos on Instagram and some other social media outlets as well. Jill has a tremendous story of survival from a traumatic brain injury that unexpectedly occurred on a day just like any other. And as I mentioned, Jill is an adventurer, and we're going to connect with her in a remote location where the internets aren't always that great, and sometimes you hear some things in the background, but that's just kind of how... Things work in remote locations. Hey, Jill, thanks for joining the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Uh, Thanks so much for having me, John. Where in the world do we find you today? You find me on Monday morning in Kathmandu, Nepal. Okay, I said today because actually it's Sunday for (laughs) me. So did the sun come up tomorrow? Um, the sun did come up. It's hiding behind some monsoon clouds and a little bit of drizzle, but I know that it's there and it will shine brighter soon enough. That's good to know. That's reassuring <laughs> that the sun comes up tomorrow. I, I appreciate, appreciate knowing that. Absolutely. So, so what are you doing in, in Nepal? What's going on there? Well, right now I'm actually in the city in between expeditions. So at the moment, uh, my days are filled with training, physical training, and then a lot of writing, communicating and sharing my story, but also preparing logistically and gear because I'm heading on an expedition in just about three, less than three weeks now, early in September. I'm heading up to climb the world's eighth highest mountain, Manaslu. Manaslu, the world's eighth. Highest mountain. So how tall is that mountain? That is 8,163 meters above sea level. Wow. Okay. I don't know the conversion on that, but that's that's pretty tall. I was tall. just going to say, I don't know how many feet that is, but it's high. Yeah. Eighth highest would, would, give, you the, would yes. give that away. So like, <laughs> how long does that, you expect that to take to go from the bottom to the top? Um, well, from the time I leave Kathmandu, it will take about between seven and eight weeks. Wow. So a lot of acclimatization, I'm sort of um, just getting the red blood cells built up and adjusting to the altitude to do it in the most safe and successful um, way of climbing. Yeah, in total, it'll it'll be the better part of two months. That you've been there preparing to climb for the for the seven week climb, or that includes the seven week climb. No, so um, I I mean I've been here and my training is no the the expedition itself will sort of start september 1st ish around first week in september and then that's where i i count the seven weeks beginning from then and so how long have you been climatizing uh well actually here in Kathmandu, um 
we're at one th- about 1,200, depending on where in the valley, uh, meters above sea level. So it's not really acclimatizing. But I've been here in Nepal this time for, in September, it'll actually be two years. It was not um, what I had, or the, the time I had intended to stay, as much as I love it here. But the pandemics played into um, my the blueprints of my life. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's um, been longer. Uh, it's been great in many ways. It's been challenging in many ways. It's not what I expected in many ways. Um, but it is what it is. And I let go of that, which I can't control and embrace what is and Nepal is a great place for that. Yes, you did let go of what you can control, and you're you uh, you're familiar with things not going on your timeline, which is part of the reason why I connected with you for the podcast. Here uh, was to talk about uh, a life change for you, which is it's kind of similar to a life change that I had. Similar in the sense that it was a day like like any other day, mm-hmm. and uh, your world changed. So walk me through that day and and kind of what's what happened there sure it certainly did um yeah a day that began like any other on my uh racing road bike around um starnberg lake which is in the um, foothills of the bavarian alps in germany um so on a wednesday morning uh before I was heading to work, where I was a health and sports science and physical education teacher, I was working and uh, at that time I was preparing for an upcoming weekend race in Switzerland, actually. I was, it was sort of the culmination of summer training, a mix of running and cycling. I was going to be racing in the World Duathlon Championships Um and leaving after school on Friday. However, so on this Wednesday morning, I had gone for a bike ride before work, just um, sort of some final training and got myself to work. Where And, and I use the word work uh, loosely, lightly, because though it was my paying job, um, I really enjoyed um, spending time in the fields and in the gym with with high school students from around the world. So I was working at an international school where students of expats, of, of foreign, generally of foreigners, but some locals as well, more than 50 countries were represented at the school. And that morning um, started with a with an assembly, Wednesday morning assembly. And then we, uh, the forecast was actually a little bit monsoon-like as I look out the window here now, gray, overcast. And my colleagues, uh, maybe perhaps a little more um, tuned in with with fair weather. (laughs) And I, perhaps it's my Canadian roots or just growing up in Northern Ontario where the weather didn't matter too much. We just put on some good gear and went and played outside. And that's what I did on that particular morning. My my students, um, I just much prefer to get outside in the in the elements than staying in a you know the enclosed gym. And and the goal of of this lesson involved um, baseballs, baseball bats, and and so that space is much more appropriate for for the goals and and my hopes for the the tenth grade lesson that morning. So I was with about twenty, around sixteen year olds, fifteen sixteen year olds. Um, and we, it, we, so we were in the second week of school and the first few lessons had sort of just been inter- introductory, um, you know, passing, catching, um, connecting 
with baseball bats or sorry, with baseballs. Um, and then this was our first lesson uh, where we were actually going to connect baseball bats and balls. So students were excited and so was I. I mean, I uh, just like I said earlier, uh, really enjoy what I do and sharing my passion for outdoors, my passion for sport and being active. And so, yeah, we were all excited. Everybody was doing what they were supposed to do. We had had a super fun warm up. And then we broke off into three different groups, uh, sort of learning centers where I had introduced or revisited the skills we had learned the previous week and then um, gave instructions for what was going to happen at each <clears throat> station. And of course, I can't be in three places at once. Uh, and the, the students um, in the group that I was at, we were, we were together in the equivalent of third base. And then another group was sort of at home plate. And that group at home plate, um, again, they were doing what they were supposed to do. Um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, there, there was, there was no, um, nobody doing anything incorrect. Um, however, life just happened that um, a student connected a baseball and baseball bat as he intended However, the direction he intended was not um, was was not the direction he intended. So the ball actually, instead of going sort of towards first base, it went to third base where I was standing, and I was looking in the opposite direction and didn't see the ball coming, and the ball actually connected with my the right side of my skull. So I feel like I can see the entire lesson, the entire scene from above, like a Bavarian eagle looking down on that field. Um, and I knew that something was seriously wrong and that I needed help immediately. Yet at the same time, there was something telling me, you know, I need to stay calm. I've got all of these students who I am responsible for and so, so trying to um, fight to to mask perhaps the pain, stay conscious, and and let them let them know we needed help right away. And so, sort of the next thing, I'm, and and from there on, the next really the next couple of weeks are in and out of, of memory consciousness. And I was taken to the local hospital and. I was told I had a black eye, which from the moment of impact, the eye closed. So the right eye closed and immediately started almost to personify that baseball, the hardball. So as in it just swelled immediately and and the the color changed very, very not black, but a very deep deep purples and blues and just started spreading across my face. So the hospital told me I had a black eye and trusted the two friends, colleagues who were with me to, to take me home to the small farm. I lived in, in like a farmhouse, literally a farmhouse above, above a barn or yeah, the, the sort of second floor in a barn. And um, so they got me home. And then the next sort of day and a half it was in and out of consciousness and very, very sick, nauseous, vomiting. I felt like my head's 
I, 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 the only word that really, I, I felt like it was going to explode. And there were, there was, you know, sort of questions of this, this, this has got to be more than a black eye. While at the same time, it's just a black eye because that's what the medical experts told me. And so of course I'm going to be able to race in two days, um, bike and run. I can, I can do those with, with a black eye. And my friend flew in. So on the, on the Friday, my friend flew in from the UK to visit and he was actually going to bring me to the race. And instead, when he got there, um, got himself in, found me and immediately raced me to the hospital. So basically that time in between is in and out of consciousness. And I was taken back to the original hospital where I was very soon thereafter put in an ambulance from one hospital and rushed to a neurotrauma hospital. So specializing in um, brain trauma about 40 minutes away. And then it was intensive care where I was um, diagnosed with a fractured skull, a bleeding and swelling brain. So Yikes. it was a little bit more, yeah, a little, little bit more than a black eye. It's a, yeah, a little different than a black eye. So when you originally went to the hospital, um, your colleagues just drove you there, right? It wasn't by Correct. ambulance that you went? That's right, yeah. And you get to hospital and you're, you're thinking, okay, so I'm at the hospital. These guys know what they're talking about. Um, did they do any x-rays or any kind of other type of, of exams other than just looking at you physically or just visually saying? Yes. So more of a visual and, um, a visual assessment. I mean, I kind of, I remember being like on a steel bed and I remember greens, like the surgical room greens. I remember somebody being right in my face, uh, and bright light. I think everything, um, you know, colors were, were everything um, hurt. You know, the bright lights were, were painful. And my head was just, the pain was just unimaginable. And um, the, the, the examination was, I, I, um, from, and again, my memory is, is not clear, but from, from what I do remember, along with what my colleagues told me, tell, tell me, um, you know, it was more of, um, can she answer these questions? She knows her name. She knows where she is. Go home and rub some dirt on it. You'll be fine. Kind of thing. Pretty, <laughs> that, that's right. Yeah. Geez. Yeah. Yeah. And your friend that was coming in to, to travel mm. with you that mm -hmm. didn't know anything about this prior to seeing you, right? Uh, he knew that I had had an accident and, but I think it was more like, um, you know, just on a mobile phone where I couldn't even hold a conversation. Um, maybe just messages like I hurt, I think probably downplaying it. Yeah. Um, again, because I'm just a sport teacher and I just have a black eye, you know, this, these are medical experts talking to me from an emergency room who are trained and specialized. And this is what they've told me. So who am I to doubt them? Mm -hmm. yeah. So just the way my nature is just toughen up and get yourself back out there. Yeah. Okay. So your friend arrives, you go back to the, is it the same hospital? Back to that original hospital briefly. And 
they apparently the same medical team was on staff that had originally seen me. And from what he tells me, the look of shock in their faces was just that of disbelief. Like they knew that there was a mistake. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Then you're off to a more specialized facility. Correct. Yeah. By, by ambulance. Okay. So what? Ha- what yes, by there? ambulance. So the neurotrauma hospital. It just began with uh, MRI, X X rays, and MRI, and then it. Um, you know, as soon as they they um, identified the fractured skull and the brain bleeding and swelling, the focus was just on that like brain injuries, complex and confusing. And there's so much that goes with them from, you know, the cognitive to the motor function, sensation and emotion. Um, She's got a black eye, but it was really just the initial time was focusing on the brain. Like we need to control the bleeding and swelling brain, because if you don't, there is a risk of death. (laughs) Um, And so that that focus until the ble- ble- uh you know sort of that first week of getting that under control and making sure that the bleeding was stopped you know, that was their focus it was like the original focus was yeah you've got a black eye and then that just got pushed to the side and it was just control the bleeding and swelling and left the eye and what 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 i was told was that um once the bleeding and swelling stopped then the eye would follow. So the blood would clear, the swelling would come down, and then that would allow uh, for nature to take place and the eye to reopen with that clearing. However, here I sit with 70% vision loss because that eye never reopened again. So in addition to the bleeding and, and swelling and the fracture, the brain damage included that which is responsible for eye movement. So the neuro, um, the neuro optic nerve uh, responsible for my eye movement was damaged to a point that I've lost all vision in my right eye. And I can see out of my left eye, basically to the way I try to explain it is it's, it's, you know, I, I know, but for anyone else to try to understand, like if your eye was sort of halfway closed, So my left eye, I can't lift it above the horizon or move it horizontally efficiently or or fully. So I can't move to the left and right properly. So if I'm having a conversation with you, um, there's a good chance I'm not looking at you in the eye because I need to physically move my head to make eye contact with you, like to look at at sort of what we would naturally say eye level. So it it's, you know, there is another uh, sort of the wake of that means meant um, or what came in the wake of that was body alignment issues, because I'm trying constantly to move my head to a place um, to see properly. So if you're if you're moving your head at all, your neck is going to change alignment. And if your neck is changing alignment, your back is changing alignment. And if your back is moving in out of what we say balance, you know, equally left and right, then your whole body is going to be off centered. So, you know, one, one little thing like your eyes, suddenly when I got back learning really to walk with this new um, imbalance, there were knee issues, back issues because everything was out of line. So your 
your eye itself really doesn't move. Is that kind of what you're saying? My left eye, so my my right eye, basically, it's completely closed. So if you look at me, well, I'm going to have sunglasses on because I'm not comfortable without them, but I'm working on that. Yeah. So my right eye is completely closed. My left eye, it does have movement, but it's not efficient and it's restricted. Okay. Well, you're in good company here. My My right eye is totally blind. And my left eye is where I have my vision. Mine is clinically defined as 2300, but clinical acuity really doesn't mean a lot because it's there's there's a pretty wide spectrum of usability. And like in your case, where there's some, I don't know if paralysis is the word, but just mm-hmm. some, that, that is okay. Yeah. So that that plays into it. So it, it doesn't really uh, on paper doesn't really mean the the real life uh, experience that you have with it, but. Absolutely. The, the damage to my vision is also the optic nerve. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I, uh, I can, I guess, kind of relate to that. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, wear, I wear sunglasses most of the time as well for a lot of reasons, really. But for um, probably the biggest one would be I just I think I'm more comfortable behind the sunglasses. But also I have a very high sensitivity to light change. So from yes. dark to light yeah. or from oh. light to dark. <laughs> Yes, so, I get it. <laughs> uh, so like even on cloudy even on cloudy days where most people wouldn't be wearing sunglasses, me moving transitioning from like an inside to outside or vice versa, uh, there mm-hmm. can be a there can be a, 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 a long time period before my eye adjusts to the new lighting. So um, oh. <laughs> the glasses kind of balance that out for me. Yes, I so get it. And I think you're the first person that is actually like I can hundred and ten percent relate to that and at you know going from from morning like if I'm for example starting a run in the dark initially when when I started running um, dark to daylight was a fear or but worse is going from um, you know that that fear of going into darkness so the light of day changing to darkness is really difficult yeah. and um, still working like even yesterday it's a monsoon cloudy day and I've got sunglasses on like I've I have a few pair but you know the less less light glasses and and somebody said you're always wearing glasses um sunglasses and you don't need them it's not and because it was something your future's that so me. bright you have to wear shades right there's a song <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I should. Hey, thank you. I'm going to use that one now. <laughs> but yesterday, and usually, you know, I've with enough time and a movement towards acceptance, I can let that stuff go. But yesterday, it kind of stumped me. It just yeah. one of those yeah. days where, yes, you're right. I am wearing sunglasses. Have a great day. Yeah. <laughs> well, so also the name of the podcast here is Ambiguously Blind because mm-hmm. with the uh, with the vision that I have. And and this you may be able to relate with this too. I, I I actually I assume you probably can because I don't know many people that would um, think about a blind person hanging from the side of a mountain, which I've seen pictures of you doing that. So <laughs> so like um, it's like wait a minute you're you're blind that doesn't make any sense. So uh, there there's a whole perception of what blindness means and uh, uh, there's, there's yes. some, a lot of stigmas <laughs> and lots of things to to work through socially and things. So. You might also consider yourself ambiguously blind if somebody's asking why you're always wearing shades or something too. So I can certainly relate to that from that yes. perspective. <laughs> I think, um, John, like I, 
I really appreciate you bringing that up because stigma is something that I feel um, in the last year or so since I started opening up and sharing my story that that is really my main goal is to help release these shackles of stigma that people put on, you know, when they hear the word blind or visually impaired, that they have this assumption or this preconceived notion of what that looks like. And same with traumatic brain injury, you know, whether it be um, what comes along with it cognitively or physically, what that looks like to them. And so, yeah, by doing what I'm doing and sharing my story, um, that I hope that I can really change that stigma and and help break it down and also um, sort of shine light on on the power of of perspective, but also a possibility. What is still possible, despite the fact that I have thirty percent vision to celebrate. You know, let's not focus on the seventy percent loss, but let's focus on what we do have and what we still can do and choose to do despite the adversity. Yeah, focus on the positive. Yeah. And I think absolutely I think so many people have so few examples of people with visual impairment or blindness or yeah. brain injuries in their life. They they maybe they Google it or they know a a friend that knows somebody that had this happen and they all the, the information secondhand and, and of course it may not apply to anybody else anyway. So it could be a totally mm-hmm. unique situation. So people have these notions of what, what those things are. And um, I would say more times than not, it's not the case with everybody. Yeah, I agree. Okay. So let's, let's, let's get back to the hospital. Um, Cause your, your journey is just beginning. It, oh yeah. I, so, so if we go right back to where I left off at that time, I had no idea because Again, trusting the medical experts, they gave me some goalposts and then they just kept pushing them. So as soon as the blood clears, the eye's going to open in and six how long weeks. Did six weeks. In six, no, that, so the original, the original was like two weeks okay. and then it was n- another two weeks, six weeks. And then, so with every movement of those goalposts, you know, every time they were pushed, it was like my hope. Just started to deteriorate. Sure. You know, the, the, there was no acceptance. Um, and even, you know, the late, uh, so I really struggle with labels. Maybe we can come back to that label, but traumatic brain injury was like, that's the stuff you hear about in the movies. Like this can't be happening. And in a, in many ways, you know, traumatic brain injury, mine is a sort of a mix because it is not an, many traumatic brain injuries are invisible. You know, you can't see the brain, you can't see the damage. With me, yes, you when someone looks at me now, or even then, you could see that I look different, or I appear different than what society tells us we should look like. Society tells us we have two eyes and, and they work properly. Um, however, um, with my traumatic brain injury, the damage inside was one. It's apparent by looking at me that there's something different. And then with the, with the diagnosis at the time, so the, the brain is bleeding and swelling the skull is fractured, you know, it's going to take some time. The eye will open once this all clears. 
And then, like I said, the goalposts, one and then pushing and then pushing and then pushing. And during that time, the hope was deteriorating slowly and sl not actually not so slowly. It was it was it was plummeting quite quickly um, with every false promise of change. Um, my hope. Yeah, it just deteriorated to a pl place so dark that I I started to question, is life actually worth living? Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe not even question. It was just it's, I made a decision quite quickly. Like I'm not at that point it was slipping but then at six months when I got an official diagnosis you know there had been no change with the eye um so another my second so that was neurotrauma hospital I went to an eye <clears throat> excuse me a specific eye center in Munich another diagnosis same thing and then finally um a neuroophthalmology specific hospital in in a different part of Germany 6 months later and that's when it was sort of black and white yes you're not going to get this vision back and with that that's when i really uh, at that point i guess it would would say a decision like life was not worth living because i'm not going to be able to drive my subaru with my bikes on the roof and my skis in the back and just go to the mountains and do whatever i decide if it's snowing or if it's sunny i can ride a bike or i can snowshoe i can ski but suddenly i couldn't do that anymore and so that was i had really attached myself to that um autonomy to that independence to that athletic adventurous lifestyle and being you know single i didn't have you know someone's not going to be doing that for me they don't just Dry, you know, I, I I was just used to being able to drive and go places and do things by myself, and now losing that that independence and um, being dependent on others is um, yeah, it's is a whole new world connected to control. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a whole and, new world, and and control absolutely. is is really the primary function there that that you're talking right. about. Yeah, I can mm -hmm. certainly relate to <laughs> I can relate to that too. But j just to kind of backtrack a little bit again you mentioned a couple of hospitals yeah so you're you're in the germany area i think yep yes and this is like yep. third or fourth hospital now when you say you're in mm -hmm. the hospital like you're in the hospital it's not like an outpatient thing it's like you are in the hospital right yeah so i, I was at the the neuro uh neurotrauma hospital and then like a day trip so they take you uh you know put you in your wheelchair put you on a special bus yeah. And the bus would take me to Munich for the day. Okay. So, I mean, even that'll work on you. Just being in a hospital, uh, <laughs> you know, it, uh, that, that's enough to, to get, get you thinking crazy anyway. Forget about all the injury and the vision and the, all the other stuff. I mean, just being constrained to a hospital. It's, not it's a storm. It's an expedition. It was, an, I, I call it a 26 month expedition because for more, from September until, so past two more Septembers until the following December. So 26 stormy months in seven hospitals in three countries. Wow. Yeah. Because as, um, I alluded to earlier with my traumatic brain injury, it wasn't just the visual impairment. Um, it wasn't just the neuro optic nerve. There were other complications that came along with it. And that, um, so including, including the, like Ed mentioned, you know, the cognitive and motor as well as emotional, um, 
and sensation, you know, sensation that, that um, we are dependent on our brain for, you know, we had mentioned, uh, I think we mentioned earlier, sounds and, and light adjusting to that. Mm-hmm. But also um, it, the area of my brain that was affected includes that which is responsible for appetite. And with no appetite and no relationship with food, um, my body deteriorated to a point where I was given three days to live because um, I was so malnourished and my brain was, my brain was, had gone through so much trauma and trying to heal from the bleeding, from the swelling, from the broken skull, cracked, fractured skull. You know, a brain normally requires a lot of nourishment, but when it's um, not being fed or fueled, um, you know, even with a healthy body, um, things are going to um, take a bad turn. And going through a traumatic brain injury and developing this um, ill relationship with or no relationship with food, yeah, my life became in a very critical state. So changing, you know, focus would would had moved from the brain to getting the eye taken care of all while at the same time, my body was deteriorating to a point of, of um, where my survival was questionable because I was not being um, nourished properly and my brain could not function. And so you, the signal from your brain just wasn't saying I'm hungry. I mean, you just weren't getting that sensation. That's right. So there, it's actually quite multifaceted. Um, because the, the trauma itself, often with a head injury, you lose appetite, um, with, with the head, the pain, but also, um, nausea. So, you know, the vomiting that started within hours of the actual trauma, I just developed this instant, um, horrific, um, relationship or association, I should really say association with foods from that time. So, you know, in it was early September and that summer I had been, um, you know, depending on the farming season, what vegetables and fruits are available, you sort of go in, in phases where it might be strawberry season or it might be mango season. And if you eat a lot of those foods, so anything from that summer, from that time, any association to that food um, was just an aversion in itself, like the thought nauseating. So the, the, the aversion to foods associated with that time, as well as um, the brain itself not triggering signals to feed myself that, you know, there is um, a body that needs to be fueled. But the, the indicator, what do you call it on a car? The gas tank, the, the gauge, the gauge was not working. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, but yeah, this whole so time you're, you're in the hospital. So I, I assume there's some visual signs for the caretakers. Mm, yeah. And that's, that's a really good point, John. At first it was, um, not in, in the German hospital. It was, um, it was apparent, but they, they took it lightly and they weren't really, really tracking because they weren't, they weren't focused on that. I mean, the, the teams, it was almost like something was the, the team wasn't communicating fully between them. You know, there's the, the nutrition team, maybe not communicating with the, um, say the, the physio team, the physio team, everybody needs to be communicating. And at that point, I, I started trying to mask it and 
um, without going into too much detail, hiding the fact that, you know, let's just say I was pretending I was eating when I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then I was able to shift to from that ICU, basically to where I would come to the hospital for seven appointments all day. So it was like going to a full-time job um, seven days a week. So, no, no, no. Uh, yeah. So, so for after the four, after four months, I got to go to my little farmhouse apartment and get driven, get picked up every morning and then brought back in the evening. So I could basically sleep on my own, but at the spend the day at the hospital. And at that point, I they weren't tracking. But then that quickly, um, it it was becoming more and more evident with my, they started weighing me. And other than just the, I guess, for me, I thought it didn't seem obvious. But again, I had a brain injury. And that's when I was put on a, a wait list, actually to or sorry I was re readmitted where they were tracking where they could track things and then the um therapies got halted um halted because I was so malnourished that my doing any rehabilitation was not possible you know trying to improve things requires a functioning a fed brain body and mine wasn't, and I wasn't doing that. So they basically said she can't do physiotherapy. She can't do this cognitive training because her brain needs to be nourished. And so then switching to another hospital, and then I was put on a wait list for another specialized hospital. I got moved to that one, and they said my that my body weight was too far gone for what they could do. So I was essentially brought to the next hospital, a neuro rehabilitation hospital in another part of Germany where I call I refer to jail because I was in a room and never got to start therapy because I was too sick so I've got the vision thing going on and I'm struggling with to accept that that it it's actually not going to change I'm being held because no German hospital that specializes in eating rehabilitation or eating recovery will take me because they they feel that a number of actually three things one being um, a lot of eating recovery uh, involves group therapy and I'm not fluent in German in German speaking so they they felt that that was sort of no we can't take her the second thing, my body mass index was too low for what they felt that they could um, revive. And third, I'm a foreigner with insurance. Um, and so, sorry, my, my medical insurance covered by my, uh, by my employer um, believed that German healthcare is state of the art, some of the best in the world. And so moving me to an English-speaking facility in, say, Canada, they they looked at, I believe they looked at England, Australia, and Canada. But um, the insurance, they, they just felt like I should be staying in Germany. 
And so there was just all of this conflict. My story just is so complicated and confusing with all of the the injuries itself, but the fact that I'm a foreigner and um, my insurance is sort of saying stay in Germany. And then it got to the point where the medical director of the neuro rehabilitation hospital told the insurance company, if you do not um, transfer her, you're going to lose her. And, and at the same time called my brother in Canada and said, your sister might not make it. And so with that phone call, my brother got on the next flight, literally, and came to Germany. And despite all of the complexities of insurance and the fact that I'm actually Canadian, but I'm not a resident, that's just another whole story. Um, but he, I don't have Canadian healthcare. Anyway, I was transferred to a facility in Canada. And even there, they felt that I was too far gone for what they could accommodate or, or, um, uh, what they, what they had, uh, the facility to, to help. So I was taken there and then I was actually flown with a nurse shortly thereafter to the specialized treatment in Colorado. I had never been to Colorado. I was angry. I was furious with the medical system or non-system, just feeling so alone because no one understood all of these complications that were coming in the wake of this brain injury. I was furious with my brother because now, I, I mean, I know he just had the best intentions, but I just wanted to be left alone. And I thought at the time, you know, I just told him, I'll figure this out. Just let me stay in your basement. I'm good. I'm good. And he wouldn't have any part of that. So I was, I was not, I had no patience, <laughs> a patient at all of these hospitals, but I had no patience. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, the, the frustration and struggle to accept and anger, Anger coming out as aggression and denial and then, you know, just so much darkness just being, just felt so misunderstood and, and tossed between these different specialists, but yet no one really knew what to do with me. I don't know what your first question was, but I, uh, went off there. <laughs> I can't even imagine there, there was a lot of things that happened right there, but, but like, uh, I, w I was thinking as you were walking through that. I'm wondering, like, who is watching after you? I mean, are you, are you alone? Uh, literally, That's I mean, right. you, your your friends or colleagues or whoever are back to normal life and yeah. are are maybe further away from you than 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 can help. Um, your family is is in another continent. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So there's really, yeah. I mean, you're you're in charge of yourself, and without trying to offend you here you really had no business being in charge of yourself because of the injury. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't take care of yourself. And it sounds like, yeah. it sounds like things just weren't, weren't going stellar with the uh, German healthcare system. I like that word, not stellar. <laughs> um, <laughs> absolutely. John. Yeah. And, and to hear you say that you're absolutely right. I had family. So my siblings, my parents in Canada, I've been away from Canada for so long, you know, I didn't want to be rescued. I didn't want anyone flying over and think that they were going to fix this. And friends, to be honest, I was pushing people away. Like I'm, I'm so thankful for the friends that have seen me through this because I was not a nice person. I was 
yeah, I was pushing people away because I didn't want help. I was in denial. I was just so used to my independence and my autonomy. And I wanted to figure this out myself because I just felt, I felt no one, no one could possibly understand what I'm going through right now. And I just wanted to figure it out by myself. And the, what I feel or felt at the time of figuring out myself was just ending it all. Um, thankful for the people that never gave up on me when I completely gave up on myself. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough spot. Really dark. Mm, very. But that's why I share now speaking to you from a much healthier place of moving from that darkness to finding so much light in all that has come in the wake of my traumatic brain injury and the lessons that I've learned. And now perhaps I'm not a classroom teacher, but I feel that I can be a teacher to others in just embracing impermanence and the way that light, the ways that life can change. You know, we, we, your listeners, anyone um, may not connect to traumatic brain injury or vision loss, eating disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, etc. But every human can connect to adversity and going through tough times, going through darkness. Um, for I mean, right now in the we find ourselves amidst a pandemic. Every human, you know, can can connect to that and and struggling in their own way just with that. But it might be other types of adversity, whether it be illness or family relationship, work. Um, and so, by sharing my story of my movement from that dark place to where I am now, embracing life and. Um, amongst the highest of the Himalayas. Um, I hope that I can, can add some light into some hope in, in people who may be struggling to find that of their own. You are absolutely doing that, Jill. And there, there's a, oh, as, as I'm looking at your website, which is mountainsofmymind.com, you can yeah. keep track of Jill's adventures. And we'll talk about those here shortly too. But there's a, uh, a big, bold quote on your website that says, every day is an opportunity to celebrate impermanence and live the life that I nearly lost. And I think that's, that's kind right. of what you just summed up is kind of what your motivation to, for life is now and, yeah. and what you're, what you're doing. And you are going to, you would, you're definitely going to touch a lot of people. I, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. It took a long time, um, a really long time and it, it, and others to help me shift my perspective to see, to see, <laughs> quote, um, that by opening up and by sharing my story that I can help others. Because for so long, I just kept everything to myself, feeling that nobody could relate. I was really focused sort of still on the losses. But once I like literally shifted my seat, shifted that angle to see that how by sharing, I can help others. That, you know, with that realization, I'm all in. And, you know, talking to you and, and other podcasts, other articles, interviews, and my, really, that's the reason I was able to be, and it took convincing, you know, that's how I was convinced to, to start my website. So from what, what actually started in the hospital with friends taking notes and, and, you know, writing reminders of what Dr. Jill's seen or what appointment she has or what hospital is next, what medication she's taking. When I was able to take over those notes myself, um, that has evolved into journaling and then friends encouraging me to share my journaling. Um, 
in the form of a website. That took a long time. But when I finally was able to shift that perspective to see by how opening up and by sharing the light, but also the darkness that I can help others. And really, um, you know, with with social media and the way that um, things can appear, you know, it's it's not all pretty mountain pictures. And I really aim through my writing, as well as through the captions, which I share with my with my posts, my social media, uh, and now more interactively with stories, just being honest, like every day is not going to be easy for anyone. And so if I'm struggling, I try to share, um, you know, what is it or, you know, just knowing it's going to pass. These are tough times. Um, it's going to get better. But yeah, whether it's, you know, the the standing on a sum, sunny summit is fabulous, but it's not always like that. And it took a tough climb to get there. So really, I, I feel that, um, you know, a mountain analogy can can really relate to, to my story generally, but also um, just day to day, um, every day, you know, yeah, there's, the, the there's good downs. points of the day. Yeah. yeah. The and, and unpredictability, the storms that come and go. Yeah. It's ever changing. I appreciate your, your candor. You do have some really descriptive writing and some just phenomenal pictures, unbelievable pictures. <laughs> um, but of course the captions are important too, because as you, as you alluded to, everybody's living their best life on social media, right? Everybody's posing at the smile and, and everything's perfect. But as, as anybody really knows that that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, you know, maybe two mm. seconds before or after that picture was taken. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I felt when I was convinced to start the website, I said, sure. All right. I'm in, but I'm not doing any social media because I think it's just fake, you know, too much fakes. But then, okay, Jill, well, how are people going to know you have a website <laughs> if you don't use social media? So again, some convincing, a little shift in perspective. And now I just really choose to focus on what social media can do, the potential that it does have, um, you know, for that, you know, waking up this morning to a message that said from someone who's going through, um, be trying to become sober and found my website. It's just like, yes, yes, this is why I share. Um, but also, um, you know, I feel being vulnerable and authentic. Um, you know, we need to, we need to look at any type of media with, um, uh, a filter like, and, and again, coming back, back to those ca captions of, uh, reality and, uh, sort of a side note with with lockdown and the pandemic here in Nepal, I just came back well, about a month ago from from three months sort of being stuck in the mountains. Yes, there's worse places to be stuck, but um, I was without my computer and and had limited limited connection, limited uh, to, to people physically and and actually even by technology. And I had some. I've I've had quite a bit of. Uh, encouragement to share more interactively into my days, like inviting people into my days to get a sense of what, what is it like, you know, with your visual impairment and the, um, the symptoms that have come in the wake of your brain injury, what are some of the tools you use? So I, something sparked, um, a, I guess a little bit more inspiration to share more interactively. So I'm using stories more and facing that fear that I had 
of I still I still struggle with with facing the camera and and being more interactive but the response from people has just been incredible to you know inviting them into my days and just talking authentically like hey guys I'm going out for a run but it's really hard to get myself out the door this morning and just you know just being honest about um about what life is really like not just the not just the pretty summit photos yeah, people can relate to that because it's real for everyone and mm-hmm. everybody wants to s- suppress those feelings and and do exactly. the same thing, but when when they hear other people talking about it, then it it may encourage them to uh, at least embrace those challenges a little more openly and and feel more comfortable about the fact that other people struggle with this too. And I think just like we talked earlier John about stigma, and I feel the one way to break down stigma is to educate and, you know, it might not seem like a formal lesson, but if I'm using in, uh, Instagram or stories or social media, you know, as a tool, as an avenue to share my story, it's might not be like a black and white, you know, structured curriculum. But in a way, I feel, I hope, is that I'm releasing this stigma, you know, with what people think or what automatically comes to mind when they think vision loss or traumatic brain injury or an eating disorder, you know, by talking about these things, I'm educating. And with that, I hope that, um, that I can break down some stigma. And to go back to your story, just again, for a minute, um, I feel like maybe the best part of the story is, is right here because now you're in America, which is where I am. So (laughs) yay, America. And I feel like you, Things started to come together or you, you got at least got the attention and care that you really needed and maybe propelled you forward faster than maybe you would have been otherwise. Absolutely. Colorado saved my life. <laughs> um, yeah. So getting the, just like you said, getting the specialized care in Colorado is what got me on my feet. And even though at the time I didn't think I wanted to, the inspiration from those Colorado Rockies that I could see out three different healthcare facilities I was at in in Denver. And from each of those healthcare facilities, I could see the Colorado Rockies. And there's just something that I've only sort of come to realize recently. There was some kind of inspiration in those mountains that led me out of hospital and to here where I am today. Yeah. In the Himalayas. Yeah, yeah, I can I can see that. Yeah. The Rocky Mountains right there in your view. Exactly. So you, how long were you in Colorado? A total of seven months. Yeah. So so from the acute care, literally, um, where you know, hooked up to to tubes and every type of um medical monitor um in in terms of uh ensuring I was, you know, to keep me alive. One person, you know, 24 hours a day, one, one-to-one care. So a, a nurse's assistant within one meter of me, 24 hours a day. That's pretty incredible. That means, but that's a lot of... That means that's toilets. Of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no shower. Well, I wasn't well enough to, you know, to, to have a shower. And so not all of the seven months, but about four, uh, four of those months were complete one-to-one care. And then I start with, with time and progression, uh, with their help because they never gave up on me. Then I was able to move to a lower, um, intense healthcare facility and, 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 um, 
move, movement towards independence mm-hmm. where I eventually got to leave. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate to that too, with the whole privacy thing I was in mm-hmm. with my little episode in the hospital and, um, yeah, it was privacy was out the window. I mean, that's, and that's just the way it is. And you just got to get jiggy with that. And, <laughs> Um, I was not jiggy. <laughs> yeah, well, the the alternative to it um, is not is not pretty, um, no. but at the time, no, that's you're you're yeah you're not you're you're fighting against that, and your your will to control things and and do things mm. the way you used to do them, and and want to be like normal. Uh, that those yeah. are all very strong sensations and feelings that take a while to uh, get get a hold of and, and understand that, that, that this is the, the new way that things are going to work and there might be some ways to make this better, but we got to start from ground zero and, and move from there as opposed to, um, it, it, life is not normal as, as you know it mm-hmm. anymore mm-hmm. and it's time mm-hmm. to embrace the new normal, so mm-hmm. to speak. Yeah. 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 The cycle of acceptance was definitely not cyclical (laughs) you know the think I'm sort of moving ahead but you know for so long it was just stuck in the denial and and then anger and like aggression and like I said like pushing people away because I I couldn't accept of that which I can't control and I couldn't control all that came in in the wake of my traumatic brain injury and yeah the the darkness and you know, sometimes then going backwards to still back to deny this, deny this has actually happened. And, and I don't feel like it's not, you know, it's, I don't feel it's completely, a, it's not a closed cycle as in, yes, I accept yeah. everything and no. it's, it's not great. I, yeah. And it, it's going to take time. It may, it may, you may never work out of all of it. I mean, hopefully, I mean, I'm speaking from, from my experience. Um, I hope that I can eventually, but I think every day it's better and there's lots of things to work on that, you know, most people don't have to work on and that's, that's just the way life goes. So you just can't mm-hmm. have to get, you got to get jiggy with it. You know, I keep using Will Smith, <laughs> Will Smith lyrics here. For some I reason, like but, it. <laughs> uh, you yeah. just gotta, you gotta have that, you gotta, you gotta have a sense of humor too. And I, I think you've got that because uh, that that's what helps get things, uh, get, get, helps get me through things anyway. I totally agree, John. And that's only something that I feel has come, you know, that is one of my, I've got my values that I'm really tuned into and um, which has taken time to, to reevaluate my values. I think that's another lesson of my traumatic brain injury is staying in tune to my values. And humor is only something in the last, I'd say year or two that I've really been able to, um, to really hold tight to just seeing and appreciating you know, the humorous side of life. And, and again, I think it's, you know, just letting go of some things and, and lo- trying to laugh more and, and to a point where, you know, if, if somebody makes a comment or, or, or I, you know, with the paralysis and making a joke of, yeah, it looks like I'm always winking at you. Um, or it's not some at, you know, at the beginning, I could not joke about that stuff. That was not funny, yeah, I know. <laughs> but Absolutely. now I'm, now I'm the first one to, to make light of it. Yeah, I think that gets everybody at ease anyway when you can at least make light of yourself. It, there, there's a limit to it. I mean, you don't want to yeah. be totally self-deprecating yeah. all the time, but I yeah. certainly think it makes people un- easier to understand and, and, and relate to certain things. Cause it, shocks, it shocks some people, for sure. I'm learning that culturally. It's like, whoa, I'm like, I'm joking, I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's healthy. 
you got to laugh and got to have fun with things. And sometimes that's, that's more, it's easier sometimes than, than it is others. Okay. So yes, you're, you're, yes, leaving, yes. You're, you're leaving Colorado mm-hmm. and this is like 26 months later. That's right. Yeah, okay. So you're, you're months. eating better. Are you, mm-hmm. are you back on track eating wise or is that still? Your, it's not your, easy. <laughs> okay. Are you headed in the right direction on that? You got a you got a path. You, yeah. you, you can know what you're doing, kind of thing. Um, well, I'm just talking about I, when you're leaving Colorado. All right, so yeah, I'm leaving. I'm leaving Colorado. Super excited, finally by myself. But at the same time, John, I have no idea. I'm lost, and I, I couldn't admit that. I wouldn't admit that at the time. No way. But the course. fact that I had been, you know, I'd given up my Canadian residency long before. I had been working and living independently in Germany. However, I can't drive anymore. My car has been sold. My apartment's been given up. I no longer have German residency because my job had been supporting it, but I had been away from that work for 26 months and they no longer could. So literally no idea, nowhere to go. My friends in Switzerland had emptied my German apartment, um, you know, of any, any thing. And I didn't have a lot, but you know, I had a lot of sports equipment and, and so their, um, you know, kids, their kids had my bikes and my skis are in their basement. And, but I just had no idea what to do. Like, uh, physically I was, it was like, I, I was a stranger to myself. You know, I'm, I can't, or I, I walk differently. I obviously see differently. I am so anxious going into an, uh, an airport because I mean, I had social anxiety with my vision. An airport is perhaps the worst place for me. Um, you know, when I'm not, I'm still not used to being able to see so little. Mm-hmm. And with lineups and confusion and chaos, my brain just really struggles to to settle in in chaos such as an airport. And and this this type of condition really for the for the public is almost invisible, right? I mean, yeah. you don't yeah. really have any, yes. si- yes. you, don't, you don't have a sign on that says, you know, what, <laughs> what's going on? I mean, are you using a what? white cane or anything? Or do you have any kind of visual indications for anybody that there's some visual changes or anything like that? No, the only thing people may question is the fact that I'm wearing the sunglasses. But it's a really interesting point that you make, John, about the white cane, because leaving hospital in Colorado, when it was suggested I leave with a white cane, um, that was um yeah we're not gonna do that no way yeah right i was i was livid when certain therapists suggested that and i think back to it now and coming back to the humor i laugh about it when i consider you know the photos that you're mentioning about me hanging off the side of seven thousand meter mountain um there's no white no white cane in sight Mm -hmm. um maybe a rope or two and a harness but yeah so yeah, the invisibility of a traumatic brain injury um, would would yeah uh, generally invisible if you see me coming through an airport. You know, I at that point I wasn't walking as normal, whatever the word normal means, um, as I made now. Um, still very imbalanced, and at first it was like I walked as though my friend would would say it was like I was an airplane myself with arms out, just trying to. Um, trying to balance because I'm just, you know, the only vision I have is coming from the one side. Yeah. So the airport airport still, I mean, lockdown is 
I don't know, is it some kind of, uh, it's just prolonged. You know, I haven't been on an airplane now in two years, but airports still very anxiety provoking. And then air, sorry, it's tiny airports in Nepal, but not, not big ones. Airports are really still difficult for me. And even the thought of next time I'll be able have the opportunity to fly internationally is, does not sit well. But yeah, so I left Colorado and, and with no place to go. <laughs> I went to visit family. Um, my parents and siblings live in Ontario in Canada. And so I, I went to, to visit with them. And that was a struggle. I mean, just again, you know, being dependent, staying with others um, when I'm used to being by myself. And then all of that's come with my, with my vision, but also trying to, with the eating disorder, eating around others is, is really difficult for me. And the control, you know, controlling what I can eat, what I choose to eat and eating around others is, is difficult. Uh, it still is. And at, at that point, um, there was just so much confusion and fear of judgment. Uh, I really struggled with shame at that time. And when I say shame, I just felt like I, um, I think with the way society tells us, um, you know, through advertising, through books, magazines, movies, social media, society tells us who we should be, uh, what we should be, how we should be, what we should look like. And I just struggled with that intense feeling of being so flawed, so different from what society tells us that I was not worthy of belonging, not worthy of love. <laughs> and yeah, so I was just really struggling with no value as a human and just still, you know, as thankful as I was to be at a hospital, I just was was really struggling, but definitely didn't want to admit that. I didn't admit, you know, I wanted, I needed more help. Um, so it took some time to sort out all the bureaucracy um, with respect to living and residency and banking and insurance. Um, it took a, a solid six months of, and, and again, you know, the way with my brain, it's really, really overwhelming and, um, trying to do things that I used to be able to do independently was not happening, um, as I would prefer. <laughs> and so sorting that out and the only sign that I could really see was towards mountains. And that was a feeling of, I'm going to take a year and travel in mountains and mother nature time alone with her I hope will lead me on a trail perhaps towards more accepting of the way my life has changed but also um, give me some direction as to what next and so that's what I did <clears throat> after six months I set off for 13 different mountain ranges around the world and here I speak to you from the Himalayas almost four years later. Whoa, okay. So, <laughs> so it must have gone pretty well that first year. It's interesting to say. Um, it's It was not what I, I mean, that first year I didn't come out accepting the way that everything had changed or perhaps I had anticipated having everything, having life figured out. It didn't quite happen like that. Um, however... Um, it was a good starting point, and I felt like I was just starting to move towards a place of acceptance. 
at that time. You know, I still, I had not almost a year and I had not spoken to people, um, shared any, you know, there was just sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, one person started to open up a little bit about, he was curious about my journal and then um, it just sort of started to evolve from there with some convincing of, hey, you need to share this. You know, opening up about when he was curious about what are you journaling about? What are you? And, and I started to open up and then. The yeah, next thing you know, was, you got mountains in my mind. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. And so I decided after that first year to start the website, to start sharing more. And. No speaking or anything that that first year, especially was just just the website. Um, but I decided that only blueprints, not plans. So the first year I had it all mapped out, literally a world map, knowing what season is when, because I didn't want to be in winter because I thought with my vision, that's going to be way too difficult. And, you know, strategically planning out the timing and the flights and hotel or uh, like renting apartments and places. I, it was like really structured. But then I realized, you know, Jill, just let it go. And just blueprints and blueprints, you know, come with erasers and um, you change them and you adjust. So that second year was more, you know, I had some ideas, some places I thought I would like to explore, but I was much more open minded and realistic about the way that life is. And, you know, I certainly know that life doesn't go the way we plan. Uh, and I use the word plan very loosely now and just sort of have blueprints, just have ideas. Um, so that second year was just uh, mostly I wanted to come back to the Himalayas. I wanted to spend some more time in Central Europe. I wanted to get back on skis, which is something I thought I would never do again. So after that, yeah, in that second year, that's what it looked like. I was able to go back to Colorado, <laughs> back to those hospitals and thank my healthcare providers for the life that they gave me, for getting me on my, not only on my feet, but now um, climbing up on the world's highest mountains. So to go and thank those people who I was, um, you know, so furious, so angry with for so long when all they wanted was the best for me. Yeah. So being able to go back and thank them. And now with the pandemic, I've been in Nepal a little bit longer than than I anticipated, but it's all good. It's it is what it is. And and like I said, I relinquish control and and um allow life to to be what it's meant to be. Well that's tremendous, especially that you got to <laughs> maybe um mend some fences there and tell some people why you were acting the way you were and and, and they probably understood that anyway, but um it it's gotta make you feel better to to do that and, and, and move on with things. Oh, I have, I have goosebumps just <laughs> hearing you say that. Yeah. And it, you know, it's incredible now the way um, I'm so thankful for technology and the la that it allows us um, to, to stay connected or, and to be more connected than I once was because, you know, for, for those years in hospital, I, I destroyed, literally destroyed more than one phone, like, as in anger came out and I rocks breaking phones and, um, you know, physically, uh, <laughs> losing it. Uh, I'll keep the, the language a little clean, but the, yeah, the, the, the anger and, um, and going back to, sorry, what I'm saying is being connected with some of my healthcare providers now, just, you know, um, 
I, I see a picture and, you know, who am I thinking of at this certain place or on, on a mountain? Um, and just the thankfulness that I have for, you know, those nurses that were shoving the, I say shoving, but <laughs> placing the tubes in my nose or the tubes in my stomach, filling those medication bags when I was poking holes in them and, and, you know, manipulating the medication plan and, and just now, you know, sending them just a, Hey, I'm thinking of you or thank you. Um, because no, no matter what I send, no matter what words I use, I could never possibly, um, show my appreciation for the, for the life that I have because they didn't give up on me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. And, uh, to, to back up a minute there too, you said shoving the, uh, probably like the NGI tube. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Uh, yeah. they, they probably are shoving it because not because, I mean, they probably are placing it, but because me am fighting against them to do it, they actually are shoving it. So it's probably, probably a, a good, a good word to use, even though that's not their intention. So, uh, I, I sort of, I think I shifted words there to, to, yeah. Right between yeah. and placing, but one particular moment, I remember I'm pushing myself away, like, and then I'm up against a wall while dear nurse Abby is trying to get this thing back up my nose. And I'm like, you can put it in. I'm just going to pull it right back out. And, um, you know, they just kept doing what God bless them. To do. God bless them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so there's probably a lot of other things that we could talk about. Uh, in, in, you said six hours, right? <laughs> in GI tubes and uh, yeah. hospitals yeah. and uh, vision loss, uh, all kinds of outdoor stuff. But we probably have to wrap it for this. But I do kind of want to, if you can just tell us what's what's going on with you next. I mean, you're, you're getting ready to climb this mountain um yeah. what what's on the roadmap from you just kind of loosely going forward where, where should we expect to see you hanging hanging out on, <laughs> from a rock somewhere uh thanks for asking john i think uh well i try to stay really mindful and, and uh, like we said blueprints but right now uh, and when i say mindful i mean being present not future tripping um or let, allowing my mind to tell stories of what will happen uh, but right now the focus is on manislu so like i mentioned it's the world's eighth highest mountain Um, 8,163 meters. And it's just a natural progression for me. So I had gone from walking to hiking to uh, running, some climbing. um, And now I've done four um, peaks over 6,000 meters. And now sort of this is the next uh, in terms of climbing and altitude. Um, Yeah, it's a natural progression. And it's um, provided an opportunity to practice letting go which I can't control right now and I say that because training had looked uh for me or had my blueprint had included right now actually being in Canada the U.S. and Europe over sort of North America or um Northern Hemisphere summer for for training but Mother Nature has had uh other plans so I've been here and just embracing what is um I've been up in Kumbu, which is the Everest region training. And now I'm just back in Kathmandu, Kathmandu for a couple of months, but now just down to less than three weeks. Um, I will leave the city behind and with my friends um, who has actually guided me. Uh, so he's a professional mountain guide and he's guided me on Amadablam, which is the world's one of the world's most technical peaks uh, last November. Um, he, so I'm very 
uh, confident and uh, trust in in his expertise and his guiding, um, and just work climbing together. Uh, we'll we'll head off from Kathmandu. Yeah, almost. And I don't know exactly because we life's like that, but it seems like it's going to be on the exact day that the hardball changed my life. So sort of an anniversary, a little bit of serendipity, perhaps, that I'll be going on a totally different type of climb than the when my, well, not completely different, but my traumatic brain injury sent me on an expedition of survival. And now I'm going on the biggest um, Himalayan expedition of my life so far. So yeah, a little bit of serendipity and I've, I've run around Manaslu. So I did a, tr- a mountain running race around when I first came to Nepal. So that was like 12 days and now I'm going to climb it, which will take about seven to eight weeks. So um, for followers, for listeners, um, I hope you'll follow along. Uh, I'll document it um, as much as I can during, I, but because of the remoteness, there will be very little connectivity after base camp. So the first the first few weeks, I should have some connection, but to be honest, I prefer to stay offline um, and just uh, let go, uh, um, yeah, mostly offline uh, for the first few weeks, and then connectivity just won't be an option for the, for the sort of the, the, next, the month after that as we work towards the summit. Wait a minute, you're telling so me there's no... So I'll be back no, online in October. You're telling me there's no Wi-Fi connections on the top of that mountain? <laughs> You would be shocked, actually, at how many places are connected. It's absolutely crazy. Um, sometimes that means, like, literally leaving your tent and going to walk for up to an hour just to find, like, a certain signal in a certain spot hanging off the side of a rock. Um, but this uh, Manislu, because, um, because of its location, yeah, it's going to be extremely limited. Mm, okay, well, <laughs> mountainsofmymind.com. Uh, we'll link to that in the description of the podcast and, and on the website and everything for the podcast as well. But you can, that's probably the best place to find Jill. Is that, is that right? Well, if you're going to one place, sure, please go there. It does have links to all of my social media. Um, the most with social media. So right now, um, I try to, I try as it feel, as it feels right. I'm connected um, with with stories, sort of inviting people into my days on Instagram, which is um, MTNS of my mind. So short form for mountains, mountains of my mind. Uh, That same handle is for Twitter, Um, Facebook. It's full. So mountains of my mind. And I have a YouTube channel. I'm not so good. It's just started, but um, I'm working on it. Um, And it's Jill Wheatley on YouTube. Yeah. Okay. Well, all those places or your website will find yeah. you. And uh, I'm real interested to see where you go. I love seeing the pictures. So uh, good luck to you. Thank you so much, John. I um, I really appreciate you um, having me and hopefully adding some light to others, uh, especially during these dark times. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind Podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe. And, for a complete transcript of this episode, connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.